Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and I'm very happy today to welcome as my guest, Dr. Daniel Whitney. He's with the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So welcome, Dr. Whitney. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Uh, The title of Dr. Whitney and his colleagues' paper is Longitudinal Patterns of Post-Fracture Outpatient Physical and Occupational Therapy Use and its Association with Three-Year Mortality Among Adults with Cerebral Palsy or CP. I was really interested in reading your article because I'm not familiar with a lot of literature looking at these issues in this population. So let let me start and and ask you, what got you interested in studying the use of rehab services in adults with CP? So children with CP have an underdeveloped musculoskeletal system excess fatty infiltration within dangerous areas of the body like the visceral abdomen, within muscle, within bone. And this plays a role in energy metabolism. And we're seeing these issues in children with mild forms of CP in pre-puberty, which paints a grim picture on the sort of health and function trajectories that individuals with CP can experience across a lifespan. Um, Now, these factors are likely driving, at least in part, the early onset of increased risk for an array of diseases across physiologic systems like the musculoskeletal system with things like bone fragility, but also non-musculoskeletal issues like cardiovascular disease, metabolic, respiratory, renal, and so on. So from a clinical perspective, rehabilitation seems like a nice option, a one-stop shop uh, for a healthcare intervention that can really touch on multiple physiologic systems that really need managing for people with CP. But unfortunately, the, while the research is limited, the research does suggest that adults with CP are underutilizing rehab services, at least in the U.S. Now, there's a lot of barriers. One of those could be insurance coverage. You know, uh, rehab services are costly, but insurance can help cover some of the costs, but often only when medically necessary. And that can be viewed as after a surgery or after a major traumatic event, like a car accident, for example. And we know that rehab is critical to regain function, and it's associated with long-term health and survival outcomes. So I was really interested in studying post-fracture rehabilitation to help to begin um, optimizing therapy and ultimately optimizing post-fracture health and function for adults with CP. So as a first step in this research progress, um, we really needed to identify the sort of landscape of post-fracture rehabilitation care for people with CP because it might be different. So in the initial study, we characterized the post-fracture rehabilitation pathways, which sounds fancy, but pretty much we just these pathways were based on how the U.S. healthcare system manages rehab. So people after a fracture, did they get discharged home? Did they go into inpatient rehab? Did they follow up with outpatient? We just wanted to understand that sort of landscape. Well, let, let me let me ask you a bit more about that, because 
you, you did estimate the probability of receiving services, PT and OT services for this population post fragility fracture. And almost uh, the probability was almost three quarters would not be receiving these services, correct? Uh, little to no. So some did, but that's correct, yeah. So that struck me as enormously high, uh, particularly as you point out, these services are covered by Medicare in this population, correct? From my understanding, for the most part, yeah. So what are some of the major factors why there's so little use of these services by a population who really needs them, as you described, they're really good clinical reasons for receiving the services. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really good question. I, I will speak lightly about this because I'm not a clinician, so I wouldn't have the personal experience. Um, but some of the health-related issues that come to mind that could be more problematic for uh, people with CP that could delay or just not allow for the use of rehab with things like delayed fracture and surgery, healing, uh, breakthrough pain, potentially post-surgical or post-fracture infection, pneumonia, uh, or other morbidities. Uh, there could also be issues with clinician knowledge in, in the need to order rehab services. You know, fractures are occurring at younger ages. Uh, so a clinician may see a 35-year-old patient with CP with a a fracture at the forearm, which is a relatively innocuous site for the general population, and they may not think of the significant rehabilitation needs. But, you know, if that individual uses assistive mobility devices, either full time, like pushing a wheelchair or uses a walker, that could really impede their activities of daily living independence, which has downstream effects on health and function declines. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's other factors, but, you know. No, you make a really good point. Did you look at whether or not severity of comorbidity was related to the use of these services? In prior studies, yes. And, and is it related? It's not, from what I remember, it's not as strongly related as we would think. Yeah, yeah so there might be something there, but it's not a dose-response uh, relationship. Yeah, that's very disturbing. Yeah. Uh, you had a really nice sample. It was a 20% random sample of Medicare fee-for-service uh, claims for mm -hmm. adults 18 and over who had CP. And you, it, they were fee-for-service. You didn't get into whether or not they were uh, in any kind of managed care or anything like that. Right. And it was a very large sample, and it rep was representative of the U.S., did, did you look at and did you find whether or not there were regional differences in utilization of rehab services in this population? So in, in this study, uh, we do have U.S. region as a descriptive characteristic, but we didn't model it or really focus on it. However, we have in prior work, so maybe I can touch on that. Um, we have examined trajectories of rehab use. This was independent of any sort of medical event, so independent of fracture, independent of surgery. And we did see uh, regional variation. In particular, the Northeast tended to have a higher use of rehab services compared to the South, Midwest, West. Um, and then another study that helped form the backbone of the current study we're talking about that focused on outpatient rehab use. There was evidence, all the weak evidence, to suggest that people in the Northeast, people with CP in the Northeast, had a higher rate to initiating rehab. So they were quicker to initiate rehab, accounting for other confounders, adults with CP after fracture. 
Yeah, uh, that's that's consistent with other literature and other populations, and so that's not uh, not surprising, but very interesting. Yeah, um, you know, uh, our journal is of course uh, physical therapy. My background is as a physical therapist, so I'm really interested in that aspect of your study. Uh, so I have several questions about that. First of all. You combined physical and occupational therapy services in this analysis. Could you talk about why you did that? Yes. So when we were developing this sort of methodology that has landed us here, we really dove into what constitutes a physical-based uh, rehab. When I think rehab, I think PT. However, uh, people with very severe forms of CP who are in a wheelchair might not be able to participate in traditional PT, and their version of PT may be things like OT, where they're just working on hand function, grasping, things like that, and that could have a similar stimulus as PT for people that don't are in a wheelchair. So there was interest in looking at PT and OT anyway. And then when we dove into the claims of, you know, we talked with a lot of rehabilitation specialists who weighed in on what claims would uh, matter, what we need to be considering. We found that there were sets of claims to identify the rehab uh, variables that were clearly PT, some that were clearly OT, and some were indistinguishable. And so when we thought about the sample size and what our goals were, we, we grouped everything and we just found that we were unable to have confidence in differentiating by PT and OT. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Now, one of the um, one of my personal beefs with some of the literature is that investigators do have a tendency to equate rehab professions with interventions. And in your case, you know, you're 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 defining an intervention as physical or occupational therapy, which tells the reader nothing about the content of the intervention. In the claims uh, that you analyzed, did you have data on actual interventions used by these professions? And if so, were you able to look at the actual content of the interventions? Yeah, I hear you're saying uh, no to all those, unfortunately. Yeah, we, we don't, or at least I'm not familiar with the data that we have to understand what services were, were performed. The, familiar, the familiarity of the uh, rehabilitation specialist with people with CP, what they were doing, um, which is really useful information. Yeah. yeah, it might be something worth looking at in the future because the claims data must come from procedure codes, right? Correct. And so you have data on actual interventions. And it, it, given the sample that you have, it might be really interesting to try to tease out Number one, what, what kinds of interventions do these people receive for fragility fractures, and does it make a difference? This is something to think about. Yeah, we, and you know, this, was, this study uh, is mainly supported by the American Occupational Therapy Foundation, and it was meant to serve as sort of this preliminary step to helping to optimize um, OT, and, and in my case, PT and OT. And so... There, there is a lot of, because there's so many novel interventions to yeah. work with people with CP across the severity spectrum, across the age spectrum, across the cognitive capacity spectrum. So there is a lot of interest in understanding what works for what kind of people. Um, but this study 
was unable to get into all that, but it does say, hey, there's something here. There's something valuable. Um, healthcare systems pay attention. So hopefully this kind of creates a framework in which all those really great uh, uh, studies that people are doing, the great research teams about the interventions, hopefully gives them some sort of healthcare perspective to work within, just to know that this does seem to be associated with improved survival, at least. Uh, that's a fair point. And I, and I raised it in terms of future uh, work, right, in yeah. terms of criticism. I understand oh, right. uh, it's a preliminary study, and um, and it does set the stage for some future work. I agree. Yeah, and, so, and that was the point of this, is, is this worth it? And even if we didn't find these associations, then it would be kind of what you were saying is, well, what are the services that they're actually getting, and could this help explain it? But what we are seeing is, oh, there's something nice here, but that's still, like you said, sets the stage for, well, what is actually happening? How can we optimize it? What works for what people? And that was always the intention of this set of studies. Yeah. Uh, it's good that the Occupational Therapy Foundation supported the work. Uh, good for them. You studied several potential confounding factors, and I'm interested if whether or not you had a conceptual framework that helped guide you in what factors you really focused on as potential confounders. And could you talk a little bit about that and what were the major ones that you included in your analysis? So there were a few conceptual frameworks. Um, the first framework was uh, we really needed to harmonize logistical factors and clinical theory to identify the most relevant confounders. So clinical theory is, you know, what, what would relate to these things. Uh, the logistical factors would be what's available in the database that we can measure um, things. And then how many variables we can have would be dependent upon the sample size, number of outcome events, things like that. And so from that first step, uh, we, we considered age, sex, which is typically pretty classic. Um, we also um, accounted for fracture site, which can have different effects on the initiation rehab and, and, and post-fracture outcomes. Uh, we accounted for co-occurring epilepsy and intellectual disabilities. These are commonly comorbid conditions with CP, uh, and they, in general, increase, they're associated with an increased medical complexity of the individual. So we wanted to tackle that. Um, and then we also accounted for the Whitney Comorbidity Index, or WCI, which is uh, like the Charlson and Elix Hauser Comorbidity Index, uh, but it's specific to adults with CP. Um, and it, in one way to think about it is it also accounts for the number of comorbidities or the medical complexity of the individual. We, we, those make perfect sense. Uh, the literature is quite clear that utilization of this type is influenced by various psychological as well as social factors. You focused on mostly clinical and demographic factors. Did you look at any social or psychological factors? And if not, is it because of availability issues in the database? Um, we, well, intellectual disabilities, would you consider that to be you know, the, the sort of understanding of rehab and, and directions like that. Uh, I would consider that a clinical factor, but I, I, I think it's your, yeah. Um, so then I guess to answer that, no, we didn't, yeah. And that probably plays a strong role, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it would be interesting to know, but I know claims databases are limited in that kind of information, but with adults with CP, one, one could imagine that the social network in which they're living could have a profound effect on whether or not they really get access to the services, even if they're reimbursed. 
Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. So in your analysis, uh, could you share with our listeners the major factors that either delayed the initiation or disrupted the use of services by this population? So we did not examine that in this study. Okay, so you did not look at that. Yeah, so sorry to the listeners. I can't provide that information. (laughs) Maybe something to do in the future. Yes, agreed. Uh, Adults in the sample who used the services within six months after these fragility factors, you you showed that they had a significantly lower hazard ratio for three-year all-cause mortality. In other words, they had improved survival. Could you talk a little bit about the the magnitude of that relationship and whether or not it, in fact, is clinically relevant? Because with the sample you had, it wouldn't be difficult to find a statistically significant association. But I, I think listeners would be really interested in both the magnitude and the, and the potential clinical relevance of that relationship. Yeah, so, you know, uh, clinical significance is certainly subjective. And uh, because I'm not a clinician, I think my opinion is less relevant. Uh, but as a researcher, I view my role in the greater field as providing information that is or can be clinically useful. So what some of this uh, studies did, um, looking at the sort of effect of medical complexity, is it allowed us to better understand the relationship between rehabilitation after fracture and survival um, conditional on the number of comorbidities, which we can conceptually think of medical complexity uh, or how sick the individual is. And so going into this study, we weren't really sure if sicker individuals would respond better or similarly or different than people who were less sick. Uh, So to put it more simply, on one end, among those who are very healthy, one of the questions we had is, does post-fracture rehab improve survival more or less than if that individual didn't get rehab, um, or would there be no no effect because the individuals are so healthy that maybe they will rebound just fine without rehab, at least in terms of mortality three years after. But on the other hand, among those who are very sick, is there a certain level of sickness where uh, there's really no beneficial effect of rehab on three-year survival or Alternatively, could there be this sort of synergy across integrative physiologic systems where this one-stop shop of intervention or, or of rehab, excuse me, uh, improve, touches on multiple physiologic systems and maybe we see an even greater benefit than what we'd expect among sicker individuals. Now, I'm assuming you're talking about the effect modification results. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, the magnitude of the overall effect, how strong was the relationship, how much protection was there for those who use these services? I don't have the number off the top of my head. So, you know, we looked at these groups, people that were classified as low to no users of rehab within six months after uh, their fracture, people that started uh, rehab pretty early after their fracture, and then those that started later and that they were both consistent. So we have this low to no user groups, early initiator groups, and later initiator groups. Um, the magnitude of the effect after adjustments was about 20 to 25 percent um, reduced mortality, which we can interpret as improved survival. Um, so that would be the magnitude of the effect when we're just looking at the whole cohort. Okay, well, that's very helpful, I think, for people to hear. Now, you also reported that when you looked at the differences between the early and later initiation groups, 
there were no differences in survival. Why do you think that was the case? You know, I'm not sure, and it is very tempting to uh, speculate, um, but I figure since this is the first study to look at this in adults with CP and we're, and we're uh, looking at claims data, I was afraid of spending too much time guessing and speculating that this could ultimately bias my next research steps. Yeah, so, fair enough, but it might yeah. lead to interesting hypotheses that could be investigated in future research. And that's the plan, yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on that? I have no idea. Uh, in yeah. fact, I, if if in fact, this is why it goes back to my earlier questions about the content of the intervention. In a future analysis, I think it would be really interesting to try to tease out different categories of intervention and to see whether or not if you focused on, um, let's say, let's give, I'll give you one example. There's a category of very active in engaging interventions that physical and occupational therapists provide versus those that are very passive. Mm. And even at, at a crude um, categorization like that, one could hypothesize that the more active interventions might have more efficacy on survival than the passive. And you could tease that out and then you could look at whether or not early and uh, late uh, initiation of the services might in fact be be meaningful in the more active group something, yeah. something like that it's something you might consider in, in, in future research and investigators with background in these rehab professions might be really good to collaborate with to generate those kinds of hypotheses mm -hmm. so that that's that's where that was coming from i see yeah well, well, Dr. Whitney, thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoyed your study. Uh, I think you're delving into an area that is really um, not been well investigated. It's a really, I think, a useful initial step. And I, and I look forward to seeing future work by you and your colleagues uh, in this area, because I think it's an important and a high need group, as you, as you point out in, in your study, the, the vast majority of these, these folks are not getting these services that appear to have some relationship with improved survival. So it's, um, I think it's an important area. So thank you for that work. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.